Thank you, Emily. Thank you for reading. Special thank you. Yeah, as older kids, you can head out to class up to fifth grade. Um, Emily taught and led a Bible study through Proverbs this summer. Super thankful for you doing that. Glad to have you back here on Sundays, and thank you for reading this morning. So thankful for God's Word. You can stay there in Matthew 24. We will be there this morning to start a new series, Prepare for the End. Prepare for the End. I'm super excited for this, but I just want to say uh, thanks for sharing, Kyle. And uh, we don't know what that number is exactly, but we do know that you have begun to give and uh, to give in major ways. And we're thankful for your generosity uh, towards creating new discipleship spaces. Um, and uh, pretty much the only thing I heard, though, was that we have lunch after church, lunch after church, which uh, my wife has been gone. She's hanging out with um, the women in my family. <laughs> so you could pray for her, <laughs> her sister-in-law's mother-in-law. Um, but third day, and so uh, the kids are hungry and I'm starving. Uh, so lunch after church sounds great to me. Super excited for that and uh, to learn about children's ministry and just developments that have been developing for years. And for this meeting to happen, I am so excited for it. So thanks for leading that, Kyle. So I want to invite you to a conversation about prophecy and apocalypse, which if I wanted to gain uh, in, or grow a ministry, this is exactly how I would do it in the 21st century. It would be to talk about the prophecy and apocalyptic literature in the Bible. That is exactly what I would do. And so there's a little bit of a fear and hesitancy in me to step into two chapters that Jesus is going to share about the end and his second coming. And it is important for us as disciples. But I, I want to share a quick story with you this morning before uh, we dive into it. And it's this. It was uh, one night in the last five years, I, I got a, a late night phone call, which, which happened not just once, but this one time in particular. I don't want to tell you when. I got a phone call, and it was, um, it was after I'd gone to bed. And my phone rang because I turned text messages off, but I leave phone calls on just in case. And this was one of those phone calls. And the voice on the other end of the line sounded very troubled and upset. And the voice said this, Gabe, I'm sorry it's late, but I have something really important. He sounded distraught. I walked out of the bedroom before I said anything because I didn't want to wake my wife. And the voice continued. I was talking with a brother at Summit View, brother so-and-so, about Revelation. And Gabe, did you know, did you know that he believes that the church is going to be raptured midway through the tribulation? And not before it all starts? Gabe, I, I'm, I'm not sure that he believes the same Bible I do. I'm not sure he's a Christian. Because he doesn't believe exactly what I do about the end times. Pretty much what he said. And I paused. There was a nice, long, pregnant pause in the conversation. And I said, brother, let's talk in the morning. Good night. <laughs> 
And we did. We talked the next day. And it was, it was such a big deal that this detail about, hey, hey, rapture and, and when's it going to happen that Jesus is going to rescue his people from the trials and tribulation of this world? When is that going down? Dates and timelines. And, and yeah, there was disagreement. And in my mind, it was actually rather minor the way that these two brothers disagreed. And yet it was a big deal, enough for a late night conversation, interrupting my sleep, <laughs> my precious sleep, right? Don't you hate those things that wake you up? And in this one, it was a conversation that could have waited. Now, I will tell you this, and I respect this about, about this brother in particular, is that God's word matters and the authority of God's word matters to him. And I so appreciated that and that he's living out his conviction but when it does come to Revelation and Matthew chapter 24 and 25, there is going to be some disagreement among gospel-believing Christians. And, and I want to share this, that I'm going to preach Matthew 24 and 25 with conviction, but I also want to leave an open mind for if you disagree with me, that's okay. Uh, there are going to be some things that you probably will. And I hope that you will gather a greater conviction of your own beliefs about Jesus' true return. That your firm belief would become more solid after this series. But I want to humbly tell you right now that there are some things that I'm going to share with you and, and I'm going to immediately say I could be wrong about some of these details. Um, I could be wrong about some of them, and that there are brothers and sisters that I respect in this church, outside of this church, and uh, Bible scholars and pastors that are going to disagree with me, and that's okay. That's fine. Um, we want to hold to a conviction of Jesus' second coming, or the theological word we're going to get into, his parousia, perusia, and there is no consensus exactly among Christians on some of this. But it is incredible the consensus that there is on this one thing. The kind of disciple, the kind of disciple that Jesus is developing and cultivating in his kingdom to expect his return. There is incredible consensus on who that is. So we have two scenes, two scenes. And the one is the closing of one scene and the opening of another in the start of chapter 24. And so let's jump right into there as Jesus helps to unveil the end times in this conversation. Look at verse 1 with me. Jesus left the temple, so he's in Jerusalem, left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But, contrary to what they were pointing out, but Jesus answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Thrown down. So we get the closing of one scene. Jesus has, has challenged and confronted with his own kingdom the religious system. Things as they were in Jerusalem. And what does he point out? What does he point out about the temple? It's demolition. 
building demolition to the surprise and shock of his disciples. They don't believe it. They're caught commenting to Jesus how beautiful the building is. And maybe they're thinking, you know, one day Jesus is going to put me in charge in this building. I'm going to have some importance or some influence in the sacrificial system, in temple worship. But Jesus makes a big point, and here it is, that salvation history's movement. Something very significant has happened that as Jesus leaves the temple, so does God's holy presence. That's Jesus' statement right here. As Jesus leaves the holy temple, so does God's presence, and he is calling his disciples to follow him. The significance and the purpose of the temple all throughout the Old Testament is so significant, but with the coming of Jesus, we understand that this temple that was a picture of God's presence is but a shadow that's pointing to the true temple. You see, as Jesus calls his disciples to come and follow him, worshiping in the temple, around the temple, is not necessary in his kingdom. They're not expecting this temple's influence to grow. In fact, in fact he says it's going to end completely. It's going to be torn down. You know, Experiencing God does not come through a journey to the temple in Jerusalem. A gracious experience with God comes through the true temple who will give his life on the cross. This is a big movement in God's redemptive history. And Jesus points it out. His disciples need to know about it. And so the time that the temple will actually be in Jerusalem is short, Jesus says. And he walks away from Jerusalem. Now we need to understand, Jesus is going to open up the fifth big conversation in Matthew. And as he talks about redemptive history, we need to see that, that things are changing. And he literally puts physical space between he and Jerusalem, and he goes to the eastern hill of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives. And his disciples come to him, and they ask him questions because they realize we just said how magnificent is this building. We pointed out its beauty. And Jesus just told us that it's not going to exist for much longer. And so we're obviously missing something. We need something. We need to know something. We want to understand what's on the horizon as far as the end times or Jesus' second coming. Okay, so, so this is a message about the eschaton, the end times. Eschatology literally means the study of the end times. And Jesus is going to disclose a lot in two chapters. And then we have th this word that I use, parousia, talks about Jesus' second coming. And so I want you to look for these end times and second coming in this passage we're going to read. L look at verse 3 with me. The discussion begins on the Mount of Olives. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Did you see that? You saw those two? They want to know about these two things. Your coming, the Messiah's second coming, and when this age closes and the end begins. They want to know more. 
I'm not sure that Jesus answers exactly what they're asking for, but this is what we see in chapter 24 and 25. In this fifth conversation in Matthew, Jesus' extensive teaching, we hear, what does Jesus desire for his disciples? And this is it, preparing for Jesus' return. That they are ready and prepared for Jesus' return. Now this is where he begins. He starts in verse 4 talking about what's no sign whatsoever. He doesn't want his disciples to be ignorant of what's going to happen, but he also doesn't want to be, to be ignorant of things that will happen, but really aren't pointing to Jesus' return. He doesn't want his disciples to get lost in some frightening things that are going to happen, that they wouldn't be startled by the clash of, of kingdoms and world wars and empires taking over others. And so what does Jesus point to in verse 4 and 5? The false hopes. The false hopes. He encourages them, remain in me. Don't be distracted. Don't be led astray by false hopes. Look at verse 4. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Now this is really important because Jesus describes a lot of events, but only two things does he put as imperatives, commands. And the first is this right here. See that no one leads you astray. Don't be led astray. Don't be led astray. And as Jesus thinks about the disciples and his kingdom growing on earth to the end, he warns them that people will lead them astray. Verse 5, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You see, here's what we need to understand, that Jesus is saying, there are enemies coming who will invoke my name, the name of Christ, that title, but they're not going to call you to follow Jesus. They're actually going to disregard him. They're going to disregard his words. They're going to use Jesus' titles and prophecies about him, but they don't want you to follow him. They want you to follow their brand. They want you to follow their cult, not Jesus. What Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be led astray by these things. Here's my warning. Here's my warning. They're coming. They're going to use some of the same lingo, but they're about their brand, not me. Not me. The second thing Jesus says that's no sign whatsoever are confusing events. The disciples are going to see some confusing events, and he doesn't want them, he doesn't want them to be confused by them. And so what do we do? We clarify the conflict of Jesus in the world. Clarify the conflict of Jesus in the world. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars and see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of, of birth pains. I want you to underline beginning of birth pains. That is a key phrase right there. Here, Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be startled by the things that will happen. I mean, some major events in the history of the world, but I, I don't want you to think that somehow I, I've come and you've been left or anything like that. 
they happen, and they're going to happen. And I don't want people to use them to confuse you. And I, w- I don't want you to think that you are left by me. No, you can trust me. And so he says wars are going to happen, famines, earthquakes. Um, Douglas O'Donnell writes about this, that in the 3,421 years of recorded history that we have, only 268 of them have not seen war. What Jesus is saying is these are going to happen. It's going to happen. In the Roman Empire, just, just in first century Rome, they experienced earthquakes in the region of Phrygia, even the city of Antioch, which I believe Matthew wrote his gospel in Antioch. So even in, in this city, Antioch, major city in Rome, they had earthquakes, three separate earthquakes in AD 37, 42, and 115. What Jesus is saying is that these things are going to happen and they're no sign that I've come. <laughs> they're no sign of the end. I don't want you to be confused by them. I mean, these are important, significant events, but I, I don't want you to think that I have left you. These are signs, important events of history, but they are not signs that I have come. Okay, so we, we, had, uh, we had a major event happen a few years ago. Do you remember um, the red moon, the blood red moon that was an eclipse? I think, I think it was five years ago, if I remember correctly. And, and I remember... I remember um, a group of my friends back from Kansas City were a part of this movement. Maybe you've heard of it, Pentecostal movement, the, the International House of Prayer. And so I had some friends that um, predicted and believed that Jesus was going to return that night. And I mean, they were convinced of it. Uh, there, was, there was one lady that saved nothing for retirement because she was convinced Jesus was coming back that night. And, uh, and they... They tried to lead me along that, like it has to be this night and these events and how rare this is happening. And, and uh, I remember sitting out here in Colorado and, and watching that spectacular event, this red moon in the sky and the lunar eclipse. And, and it came and then the eclipse was over. And, uh, and I remember they reached out to me and, and texted me something. I don't remember exactly what, maybe it's an explanation of, like how it was, it was actually right, but wrong. And I, I don't know what they were saying, but um, I, I decided, you know, to mess with them a little bit because not only did I not buy into their dates and timeline, um, but I'm also a little bit of a jokester. And so I sent these messages back, you know, um, this is an auto message. And if you're receiving this, then Gabe has been raptured. And <laughs> I'm sorry that you've been left behind, but here's what you can do. And give to my ministry, please. <laughs> and suffice it to say, they did not think that was very funny. But, but I, I, I don't want to be arrogant. I don't want to be arrogant. But at the same time, Jesus was so clear to me that, that yeah, this was significant. This was really cool. I stayed up and I watched it. And yet, I, I wasn't convinced that Jesus was going to come back that night. But I know that his return is imminent. And you know what's the sign that he gives me? That I know that his return is near and is imminent? It's nothing that happens in the sky. It's no earthquake. It's no famine. It's no war. 
but it is actually the tribulation, the trial, the great challenge. It's the birth pains that Jesus' church walks through. That Jesus' church walks through. Jesus mentions the tribulation as the sign, the birth pains for something so much greater. You hear that birth pains? So, so get the picture with me, okay? So the birth pains of how hard childbirth is, which I'm not going to go into at all, way out of my element here. I'm going to stick with what Jesus says and nothing more, right? But how hard and yet what comes after that, right? A, a baby. That the birth pains, the tribulation of the church. Now, tribulation is a key word. It's a key word in Jesus' conversation in 24 and 25, and here's essentially what he means. It's a chain of connected hardships filled with opposition to God's people. That's what Jesus means by this tribulation. And Jesus wants his disciples to be prepared to walk through hard days in great opposition. That's what he wants for you and I. More than global wars, the opposition towards you as a church, towards Jesus and Jesus' people, is a sign to you of the end in Jesus' return. Look at verse 9 with me. And circle this word, tribulation. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Okay, now here's the big question. This is where I'm going to say it's okay to disagree with me. But there are a couple different views about when this tribulation happens. When does this tribulation happen? And you need to answer in your own mind from this passage, from God's word, what you believe about this. There are some that believe that this tribulation is what the disciples, the apostles, walked through in the first century. Well, we can read all about it in Acts. That's what they'd say. It was complete. It was finished. That the end times have begun. And that's what Jesus is getting at. And there are others that say, no, this is, this is all a future tribulation that's to come for God's people, for God's church. And then there are some people like me that believe Jesus is talking about what the disciples that he is speaking directly to will walk through, but also the church today will walk through in the 21st century. A both and a lot of theologians have used this example of Jesus is painting a very clear picture. This is not Jesus' fault that we'd have any kind of disagreement or discussion about, about when does this happen or when did this happen. But it's kind of like this, looking at a mountain range and seeing the various peaks, that Jesus has painted a very clear mountain range of the end times. But here's the thing about these peaks is sometimes you can't tell the distance one from another when you get the view of a mountain range. That's what Jesus is talking about. This is what's going to happen, but we don't necessarily get to match things up exactly when and how they will. If you've ever, I know a number of you have climbed lots of 14ers, right? Big Colorado activity, right? Climb a 14er. And I remember, um, oh, you've 
probably walked through this, a false peak, right? It's when you think that you're close to the top, and as you're ascending, you think, this must be the very top of this mountain. But the truth is, it's not. (laughs) And you get there, and you realize there's another peak over there. I remember in particular one mountain that I was climbing, Mount Elbert. And, And Mount Elbert has a few really big false peaks where you you think I've got to be at the top. But I did my homework, and I read a few articles, and I even read a chapter in a book about hiking Mount Elbert, and it talked about these false peaks so much that I knew they were coming. I knew they were coming. And so as I was ascending these false peaks, I knew, I know this looks like the top, but I know it's not. Because someone helped me understand those. That's what Jesus is doing right here. I want you to understand these events so that you're not caught off guard by them. And some of these are very big. Some of them are certainly startling. Jesus talks about a conflict that comes from outside the church. And then what does he talk about? A conflict from within the church. That's scary and startling to me. Look look at what he says. The conflict that comes from outside the church, he talks about a hardship, even martyrdom, and being hated by, this is really key, being hated by the nations, hated by the Gentiles. That's what this word means. Anybody that is not a part of Israel, the nations. Now, I want you to, that's a key word, because Jesus is going to come back to the nations and the Gentiles. Because you and I might say, man, I just want to be done with these nations around me that rage against Jesus, and I'm caught up in this conflict. But the truth is that, that you have an important purpose in the nations, and you can't disregard them. Yet Jesus right here says, expect, expect to be hated by the people that hate me. That's a conflict from outside. But then there's a conflict from within, A conflict, I think the best word to use is from insiders. People that say they're following Jesus. They say that they're a part. And yet, their character reveals something different. Because in the hardship, they display character that's not true of disciples. Here's the conflict that Jesus says is coming from those that we call our community. Jesus says that many are going to leave. You know, at times Jesus tells us, you're not going to know where some people are spiritually. We have to take them exactly on their word. When they say they believe in Jesus, I trust that. When they say they're following Jesus, I believe that. And I believe you. But Jesus says that at times, people that have told us that are actually going to abandon us. He describes it as a betrayal. It comes from the hardship You know, as they weigh um, following Jesus in the joy that it is to me and you, but some people are going to say, you know what, this hardship and what I'm being asked to walk through this year, uh, I don't know. And they will make that decision, and we will see true character then. Jesus goes on, and he talks about even a hatred, a hatred. This is a hatred that comes from within people that we linked arms with, that we lived on mission with, that we fellowshiped and and prayed with and prayed for us, and he says that, that they will turn around and hate you. Why? Jesus goes on to talk about the deception, that people will be deceived. 
and led away. And there are two ways that we can see that they've bought into this deception, this anti-gospel. The one is this, it's a disregard for God. A disregard for God. It's what Jonathan Edwards talks about, uh, the only true sign that we have a heart for God. Like, how do we know that? All these things that we can get up, get caught up in, what are true signs, what aren't? Well, if we ignore God and disregard God, then we don't have a love for Him. And that's what Jesus affirms right here. And that's what He affirms, we'll see. Don't be startled by it. And then lastly, the second thing is this, a love gone cold. A disregard for God and a love for the brothers and sisters that has grown cold. Grown cold. He says, because of lawlessness, that disregard for God. Now, here, there are two applications of this, this text right here. They're very important. You see, this is a warning for you and me not to be startled by people's actions. Things that we believed about someone that might not be true. But there's a second big application, and it's this. It is a watch out. Watch out that you and I are not that person. And I say this humbly. The big application here is remain in Jesus. Remember, the, the two imperatives are this. You know, don't be led astray, and don't let your faith in Jesus be startled by some of these big events. This is what's going to happen. What you and I should take away from this is watching out for these people and watching out for this kind of action. in our own soul. Because this is where Jesus goes. Look at verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole country as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. There are two encouragements that Jesus gives us right here. And the first is this, a faith that perseveres. What's Jesus's big point? It's like, hey, maybe your faith will save you if it lasts to the end. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is true faith, true faith in me that you have when you turn from your sin and you put your hope and your trust in me, you follow me. That saving faith is also a faith that lasts to the end. And that's what we are to be the business of doing. Seeing that our faith lasts to the end, that we keep our hope, that we remain in Jesus, that we watch out for the betrayal of Jesus in our very own soul, not just in our community, in our very own soul. Our one and only hope is this, to be found in Jesus. Even while he's betrayed, even while Jesus is hated, even while he's executed, that we keep going in our belief, that we don't turn back like Lot's wife, that we keep going with Jesus at his word. Now that means that we're going to be sad about some things. It's not that we're heartless. Jesus isn't heartless here. But he understands that people that have followed him for years are going to turn their back on him. They're going to show their true character. Jesus wants to make sure that our foundation, 
is true when that happens. We have a persevering faith. That's the first encouragement. The second is this. It's unstoppable gospel spread. Here's Jesus' promise that his story is going to be told to the nations. Right here, he says both on the one hand, you're going to be hated by the nations, but on the other hand, here's my plan for you. You are going to be the means and the method, my spirit in you, that the whole world hears my story of redemption. That they could be rescued from this tribulation, from their very own sin. And Jesus is going to use his disciples. So we hear about Peter in Acts, right? right? He's told by the nations. He's, kind of, he's hated on by the nations. Hey, stop talking about Jesus. And Peter says, I will not fear man. <laughs> I will do what God wants me to do. And he knows exactly what Jesus wants him to do. He says it right here. And Jesus tells him, the nations will hear the story of my kingdom. I, here's the question for us. Will you and I rejoice at the gospel being shared in your neighborhood and around the nations, even at our own loss, even in our own tribulation. Here, I want to share about a friend of ours. You and I, we know him. And in his tribulation, he gave us a great example of rejoicing at his great loss that the gospel was being shared. It's Paul. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, he writes this from prison. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to be, my imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel. Number one, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, some out there, preach Christ from envy or rivalry with me, but others from goodwill, good intentions. They do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, but others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment, what then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What does Paul say right here? What's his testimony to the church? Does he want to discourage you and me or anybody living in his days from sharing the gospel? No. He says, hey, here's my new opportunity. I'm in, I'm in captivity of the Imperial Guard, but they know that I'm here because of my love and ministry for Jesus. And secondly, you need to hear that people are more bold to share the gospel because I'm in prison for it. Here's the question. In our own tribulation, in our own giving up, in our own sacrifice, that Jesus prophetically tells us about. Are you and I willing to take up the ministry of the apostles like Peter and Paul to rejoice and engage in the spread of the gospel through trunk or treat, 
through inviting someone to your community group that maybe doesn't even want to go to church? Will you rejoice in that gospel ministry no matter what that means for you and I in this life? Now, I've got a few applications for us that I just I want to give to you. Are you ready for this? What we learn from this passage and what we will learn through 24 and 25 is this, that Jesus' return is imminent. That means any moment. It's pressing. It's going to happen soon, but we don't know how soon. And so second application, we should steer clear from dates in blood red moons and things that people get caught up in. You need to know eschatological conferences are big money among evangelicals today. I'm very skeptical of them. I want to encourage you to not be skeptical of Matthew 24 and 25 because I don't think those conferences or, or my friends at IHOP in Kansas City, I don't think they really reflect the sincerity and the gravity of what Jesus speaks about right here. And thirdly, you and I should long for Jesus' return. As we experience birth pain, you and I should long for Jesus' return. Fourthly, you and I should long for Jesus' return, and we should still long-term plan. <laughs> you catch that? We should long for Jesus' return, but that, that doesn't mean that, that you don't go to work this week because you know that Jesus is coming back. No, no. That would be a misapplication of what Jesus is talking about. Fifthly, we should anticipate resolution, restoration, and extraordinary healing in the consummation of Jesus' kingdom. What do we mean by that? Oh, man, that things are hard and difficult, yet we as Christians can imagine something way better. A new heavens, a new earth, Jesus making every wrong right, to every punch that somebody throws that Jesus is going to bring about justice. Six, we should join the testament of Jesus to the nations. Being hated by them and yet lovingly sharing the gospel with them. That's a high calling. That's a high calling. And it's hard and that's why you have church family to walk with you. And then lastly, we should maintain our faith, love, and unity toward one another. As Jesus shares about the conflict from within the church, some people showing their true colors, this, this love for one another and this unity is something that I can't take for granted. And neither can you. We have to maintain this faith, love, and unity towards one another. You and I, we might disagree about timelines and when things are happening and what was fulfilled in the first century and what's being fulfilled in the 21st century and what we're looking for fulfillment. But we know exactly the culture that Jesus wants in this church. It's absolutely clear. It's undeniable. Jesus speak with prophetic and apocalyptic words for you and I. And this is just the start of Matthew 24 and 25. I look forward to more with you. Jesus, I pray that you would make us a church that is shaped by the unshakable future of your return 
of your kingdom growing and this church plant, this, this body being one gospel outpost among the nations. God, I pray for many more and I pray for many opportunities for us to fulfill this passage in being able to share your narrative, your story with the world around us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.